0: Resolute Square. There was also maintained what was called an enemy's list, which is rather extensive and continually being updated.
1: Democrats want Republicans dead. Where I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody, and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? The women with the least likelihood of getting pregnant are the ones most worried about having abortions. On January 6th of 2021, you had tens of thousands of people peacefully protesting. No, it's not a right-wing conspiracy theory. It's not QAnon. It's real. (laughs) I'm Rick Wilson, and this is The Enemies List. My guest today on The Enemies List is my friend, a guy who has... uh, who has, who has done some of the most amazing political work of any person alive today. He's been involved in five presidential campaigns, countless U.S. Senate and governor's races around the country. Stuart Stevens is the guy who political media in, this, in the last century has basically been defined by. And Stuart has a tremendously important new book out. It's called The Conspiracy to End America, Five Ways My Old Party is Driving Our Democracy to Autocracy. This is a subject Stuart and I and the rest of the team at Lincoln talk about pretty much all the time. But Stuart has compressed this into a, an absolutely brilliant and necessary book. Uh, and with that, Stuart, my friend, welcome to the Enemies list.
0: Thank you, brother. It's good to be here. You know, that whole preamble is basically just another way of saying you should blame Stuart for how fucked up American <laughs> politics is now. But, you know, it's like, It's like saying in 1939, you know, no one has done as much for the party, you know, (laughs) in Germany, you know, here, getting introduced, getting introduced in Nuremberg. Well,
1: we're all paying our penance for our time in that party. Um, But Stuart, so as I said, this is an important book, I think, especially right now. We are, we are seeing all of the signs of how an autocratic movement is built up and how it takes over uh, a country's politics and government and and society talk to us about what you identify as the five autocratic building blocks uh, that that are necessary for any country to slide into authoritarianism you say we talk about
0: this a lot and and, you know there's a body of work that, that you and i both love and you know twilight of democracy um how democracies die, mm-hmm. uh, two Harvard professors. You know, the, the subject of how democracies become autocracy is not an unobserved subject. Correct. There's a lot of really serious people that have done a lot of work mm-hmm. on this. And when I was going through this process of asking myself, unlike you that saw Trump very early and realized what was happening, you know, it's very hard to find anybody in America, probably the universe, who was more wrong about Trump in 2016 than me. And when he did win... I you know started asking myself like how, why didn't I see this and in that kind of old high school English teacher way if you don't can't write it you don't understand it mm-hmm. and so I I started writing and reading and that became this other book I did because it was all a lie but in that sort of extension of that what became clear is that there is a pattern here that there are five elements that seem to be always present when an autocracy or democracy slides into autocracy and you can argue about their rank order of importance, but one, you've got to have support of a major political party, which, you know, the official platform of the Republican party, as we sit here today, is whatever Donald Trump wants it to be. And you had to be inside the platform fights that we were in to understand just how insane that is. Correct. Um, you know, they were like faculty fights, like you know, over parking. Like they may not have been important, but to the people inside, they were incredibly important. And that they could just walk away. The fights are so vicious because the stakes are so low. It could just become that officially in the, in the two thousand platform It's just mind-boggling. You need support of financiers, mm-hmm. which you know this autocratic movement has out the wazoo. Of this unlimited money. You need propagandists. Lord knows you know, again and. It, <laughs> You've talked about it a lot. You know, Fox is really just very much... Well, Fox increasingly is becoming mainstream for these people. Mm -hmm. There there really is a vast right-wing conspiracy. As as Hillary Clinton said, it wasn't about uh, what she... At the moment she was discussing it, but uh, there really is one out there. You need a legal theory to justify what you're doing. And in many ways, I think this is arguably the most interesting of these five. So if Georgia passes a law that says the state legislature can overturn a general election, when they overturn it, it's perfectly legal. And you need shock troops. And, you know, Lord knows we've seen those in action. And I think that we we talk a lot about each of these individually, but we don't talk about their collective impact, and how they are working together in some ways very consciously and deliberately and in other ways just in a complementary way that isn't uh, connected. You know, there's not a phone on Peter Thiel's desk that goes to Leonard Leo. It's not like a hotline. Mm-hmm. But these things work together and there is a power to their collective impact that um, I think is driving, well, like I said in the title of the book, is driving, you know, uh, how our our old party is driving our democracy to autocracy.
1: I I want to start on one of my favorite subjects right now is the financiers, because none of this works, you know, to quote the old Tom Wolfe line from The Right Stuff, no bucks, no Buck Rogers. This thing is, this machine that is driven on the right has people like Peter Thiel who's a billionaire who can drop, you know, 20 million, 30 million dollars in a campaign and bl- not not it's rounding error um and it's driven by people like Leonard Leo who has 1.6 billion folks billion with a b from one donor and the assignment is to reshape the American courts in 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 his vision i mean Stuart, you know, we, we – you and I have grown up in the Republican Party and we've both met and talked to a lot of these very wealthy Republican donors. And I think a lot of them when, when in our era did not see themselves as being part of this, this gigantic authoritarian movement, but their desire to keep things like tax cuts and regulatory, thing, regulatory you know, positions protected, they really are now part of this larger machine – that is funding the crazy, like the DeVosses and the Teals and the, you know, the U lines and people like that. They are really now driven by a really dark ideological vision. Whereas the older generation was driven mostly by like, I'd like my tax cuts and I'm going to give, cause this guy goes to my, is is at my country club?
0: Yeah. And you know, I'd like to be strong on the Soviet union. And I'd like to, um, and, and, you know, it's just a, Think about this moment, and one of the things that we always prided ourselves—sometimes, you know, uh, incorrectly—but we like to think so—that the Republican Party was a party of calm and competence, Mm -hmm. and the grown-ups. Right. So how's that look right now? (laughs) Not great. (laughs) You look look at these, you know, lunatics. I mean, you know, the difference between the January sixth crowd that broke into the Capitol is that Matt Gaetz actually has a pass. You know, I mean, he, he, he can screen at the scanner right. and get in legal. Right? He doesn't have to break the window. But once he's in, he's doing more damage than the guy in the camp also with sweatshirt, um and these crazy people. I, I think this is the financial part. It's a tremendously important part because, you know, you've talked about this a lot and really highlighted this, Rick, that there is – a desire to pretend for a lot of corporate donors, particularly a lot of these people that they are giving to the good Republicans. And they went through this whole little kabuki play after January 6th. The Lincoln project really led the parade on this, uh, trying to get donors, corporate donors, political action committees, super PACs to say that they would not fund those who uh, had supported uh, the insurrection by not voting to certified. And th- For the most part, that held for about a cycle. There were some exceptions. People that said they were not going to do it and then turned around and did it. it. But you don't have to give to an individual Senate campaign. You don't have to give to an individual congressional campaign when you can give to the uh, National Republican uh, Senatorial Committee. And you can give to the National Congressional Committee. Mm -hmm. And they, they are sort of, for a lot of these people, a sort of moral laundromat. That, okay <laughs> great, great I, I just gave it to them it's like a scene out of sopranos when some guy buys a uh a, a television that's been stolen and he goes well, you know i didn't steal it you know no right. no you just bought got it, it off the back you know, of a truck <laughs> you know what the reason i i think that money has had more impact in the republican party than the democratic party and there are billionaires over there that give to that car most famously george soros but If you take the example of, say, J.D. Masters. uh, J.D. uh, Vance. J.D. Vance and Masters in uh, Mm -hmm. Arizona. Blake Masters in Arizona. They were two candidates chosen by Peter Thiel. They both worked for Peter Thiel, a guy that made his fortune out of PayPal. Their ability to be free from the constructs of a normal political party is very different than the Republican Party. So when J.D. Vance goes out and basically defends his statement that women who are in abusive marriage should stay there because it's better for the children, as he did in his campaign, if you said that in the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party would call you out. The Republican Party was silent about that. And it, it it just enables the someone like Peter Thiel to have such tremendous influence over these people who don't really believe in anything like Vance and Masters. And they can say and take positions that are out of the American mainstream and still be supported by the party. Because, you know, it's just an interesting exercise to go through. If you think about, you know, so 2004 was a fairly close presidential election. What would have happened if John Kerry had refused to accept the results? Just compare it to 2020. The Democratic Party would have, uh, you know, completely said this is insane. Right. In various ways. Right. They would have said John's Kerry, very
1: angry. He's acting out, but let's move on. Business has would, to be He's
0: ruining his career. Right. This what what sad thing here. And, These Democratic senators wouldn't have lined up and said, well, you know, uh, we have to look into this. We don't know that it's not all these uh, editorials that he got. The New York Times or Washington Post, Mm -hmm. they would have killed the guy. So, you know, that is really there really still is some boundaries that you need of American political discourse that you need to stay in for the most part in the Democratic Party that are not existing in the Republican Party now. And that gives those who finance the Republican Party um, and someone like Peter Thiel, who can basically create his own party. Um, And you know, Peter Thiel's reason he wanted um, J.D. Vance and Masters to run is because he, he thought that Trumpism was too moderate.
1: To my mind, the weird idolization of two big figures, one, one on the money side, one on the propaganda side uh, of by Republicans of Peter Thiel and Elon Musk. And you and I have talked about it a lot. These are two of the weirdest son of a bitches to ever walk on two legs. I mean Peter Thiel and Elon Musk and look, there are some eccentric Democratic billionaires. Of course there are. But these two guys are profoundly strange. There is something broken about them. There is something – there is something – so angry i mean and and teal as you pointed out this is a guy who who from the time he was in college had this just mean streak about him just a a rejection of of everyone and everything who disagreed with him at any level and it strikes me that there that there is a like a strain of cruelty and trolling and weirdness about these guys that a lot of people haven't quite figured out yet
0: You know, there's this astounding book uh, that is a bio of Peter Thiel called The Contrarian, which great kudos to the writer because, you know, Peter is famously litigious and no one mm-hmm. wanted to write about the guy because, you know, you would get your ass in. right. And, you know, I kind of knew the history of PayPal in this, but the actual history of PayPal, when you had in the same office building, you had. PayPal and you had Elon Musk uh, efforts to establish uh, basically his alternative to PayPal and they were not working together until Elon Musk got got someone working for him to go in the dumpster after work and found a basically pitch deck for the PayPal (laughs) and realized what (laughs) PayPal was doing. So anyway, these two guys end up merging Mm -hmm. and there is a scene in The Contrarian when M- Musk has made his first money. He's bought himself a McLaren race car, right? And they are uh, leaving their office. They're still in the same office building in uh, Silicon Valley, and they're driving to Michael Moritz's house, right. <laughs> a, a good friend of yours, who has been a great friend of the of the Lincoln yes. Project. He's a fascinating character in himself. Truly a guy who was a, a financial journalist early on, who kept interviewing these people and thought he was smarter and thought he could do it. And then sure enough, he was right. And he turned himself into a billionaire and started a Sequoia firm. But they were, when PayPal was in crisis and PayPal, really, when you read it, your major point, you come away with is like how were these people not arrested? <laughs> Which is, is, you know, when they finally, thanks to Michael Mars and stuff, you know, they, they, Hired like former FBI types to come in and look at it, and that was the first thing they said was because basically when PayPal started, it was a vehicle for pornography and drug dealing.
1: God bless them um,
0: to get out of the, <laughs> get out of the system. Anyway, they get in and uh, Peter Thiel's McLaurin. They're driving the Michael Morris's. They're on Sand Hill Road uh, in, in Silicon Valley, right? Sure. Which is not like a famous racetrack curving thing. You don't shoot car commercials on Sand Hill Road. It's like the suburban road, right? Somehow, Musk is driving, he's such a bad driver, driving so fast, he flips to (laughs) McLaurin. So you have these two guys, and they literally flipped. Because it's built like a race car, they're able to walk away. And, you know, they're like, calling to get a taxi, for Uber to get to Michael Moritz's. And, you know, you can imagine, like, Peter's, you know, Peter's just like, what the fuck? And, and you know, he says something like, well, you know, at least you have insurance. And Musk goes, no, I, I don't have insurance. And in this book, it, it counts how peter <laughs> at that moment that he would never do, any, do everything he could to get out of business with some lunatic who could, you know, flip McLaurin and doesn't even have it endorsed. Um, Jesus. But the impact <laughs> of those two, um and the money generated by PayPal. I mean what people don't realize is Peter Thiel just gotta I'm get off subject here, but but Peter Thiel uh, started PayPal. He basically brought in the editorial staff of the Stanford Review, which was this like the Dartmouth Review, this conservative uh journal that had been started at Stanford. And he had them running the the organization, so they all ended up rich. And then, when serious people like Michael Mars got involved in PayPal, they started asking questions like, "Why is the comment editor of the Stanford Review like the business manager?" And they, <laughs> you know, they they started to bring in like real people, grown ups. Yeah, they in the meantime, vast wealth was created for these people. So just think, like, if everyone we know working for Breitbart all of a sudden became worth like over $50 million.
1: Right, and senior executives at 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 Facebook I mean, or whatever. I, I, look,
0: I, I think you can make a case that PayPal has, has done, that accidental wealth generated by PayPal has done more or has, has played a similar role in the social fabric of America as the accidental wealth of cocaine in Colombia has done <laughs> to the Colombian civil society. <laughs> you get people like David Sachs. So I think, you know, one of the looming questions of our time is, will those who are not crazy, who are major donors of the Republican Party, are they going to play a role here in trying to purge the party? And so far, pretty much the answer, I think, is no. These are people who in no other country could these people have acquired the wealth that they have acquired? It is the unique American qualities that have made them billionaires. And their reaction to that is to do everything they can to fundamentally change that system.
1: In in other countries that don't have the rule of law, There are, of course, people who get rich, but they're not people who get rich based on their merit. They get rich based on their connections to the power structure. And you're right. These guys could not prosper anywhere else. And yet, look, you look at Elon Musk and he is, I would argue, the Vladimir Putin's greatest propaganda resource in the US. A guy who would destroy Elon Musk if he went off the rails in the other direction for half a second if he lived in Russia, you know, you've got this bizarre Elon uh, anti-Ukraine, and that has shaped the Republican Party and the Republican Party that we came up in with, Ronald Reagan and George Herbert Walker Bush, you know, carrying out from a long line all the way back to, to Truman and Eisenhower, this national sense of agreement that authoritarian communism was bad and Russia was playing a dark role in the world. And Elon has been one of the people who has catalyzed the flip in the MAGA and Republican Party to treat Putin as the hero and and Ukraine as the villain in the story. And it it it, it it's one of the things I wake up every day, it's like uh
0: how long do you think Elon Musk would last in Russia? Oh. <laughs> before before, you know, his plane fell out of the sky like Bajorzin, or you know, he was poisoned.
1: Yeah, because the the day they came in and said, By the way, Elon, you're doing a new stock offering and eighty uh, percent of it's gonna go to Vladimir and his friends. And you get to keep 20%. Yeah, you'll be able to afford a big yacht, but you work for us now. Yeah, that, how would that work out? Not well, I'm guessing. Or
0: we have this, we have this open window here. Right. You know, that, that's, that's your choice. Um, it really is astounding. And the parallels to 1930s Germany are just so profound you have to talk about them. Because all of these uh, aristocrats in Germany – who cut this deal with Hitler? And you know their logic of it was: we have lost touch with the working class, which was true. If we don't bond with someone who can still communicate to the working class, Adolf Hitler, they are going to become Bolshevik. They're going to become communist. Which there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, and what just strikes me, they even as it began. All of the signs were there for what was going to happen. They never did what it took to stop it.
1: So moving on from the, from the, the, the area of the propagandist and, and, and the idea that, you know, there are people in this country who are, are in privileged positions, you know, two of the, two of the most dangerous immigrants in history were Rupert Murdoch and Elon Musk, both of whom have played a role in propagandizing authoritarianism in America at a level we've never imagined. So, but I want to I want to jump to the next thing, especially because you know this week we've seen the collapse of the Republican Party in the Congress, this rise of this chaos caucus, this power they have, and people are acting shocked in D.C. They're absolutely stunned. Oh, how could this have ever happened? But you know, you point out that authoritarian movements have to have control and support of a political party, and and somehow Washington, uh, the older Republican establishment. And the media and and seemingly everybody else has not noticed that Donald Trump, Trumpism, and MAGA authoritarianism has taken over every single layer of the GOP. I mean, maybe Mitch McConnell's office is still resisting it, but it's everywhere else. How you talk to us about like the depth to which the party has lost any ability to control its destiny outside of Trump? All of
0: the people we work for, and you and I didn't work for the the Uber crazies in the party. Conclusion I came to when I looked at this, that since post-World War II, there are these two strands of the party. An Eisenhower strand that was boring, uh, governmental, that could believe in an operating, governing, sane, and a Joe McCarthy side. Xenophobic, often racist, conspiratorial. And, you know, you you were for Giuliani when he was a sane person, (laughs) I, I work for Bush. Uh, I mean, I, I can speak for myself. I never would have imagined that that other side would become the dominant side.
1: We were the recessive gene.
0: <laughs> As it turns out, we were the recessive gene. And one by one, we've seen all of these people who we work for, just for the most part, some exceptions. Liz Cheney's one. Mitt Romney's another, have just passed the torch and aided and abetted these people. So Mitch McConnell, he won't even say Donald Trump's name even when Donald Trump attacks his wife. Right. I mean, it, it is just the most extraordinary collapse of party. So you have somebody like Lindsey Graham, right? So John McCain's whatever. Deputy. Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, the, the sort of. The person who should have inherited the McCain legacy, let's say, and he supports trump knowing what trump knowing that Trump was supported by the Russians, knowing that Trump wants to destroy NATO, knowing that trump that Trump believes his vision of America first is this very you know, why why are we giving money to other people and yet he comes out and you know says all the right things about ukraine mm-hmm. how do you not understand that you you can't do both at the same time and and the party i mean it, there is no governing philosophy in the republican conservative governing philosophy in the republican party that makes sense now and you know i think it, I mean, you you talked about i think you make a good case that the party became a victim of success you say in the 80s and the 90s you could just reel it off you, what did the party stand for you know Crime, welfare, and taxes. So what happened? Crime went down, taxes went down. Bill Clinton changed welfare as we know it famously. You know, we were talking about this the other night. When Clinton uh, increased taxes in 1993, we predicted that it would be a, a, a the end of the economy. This was going to throw us into recession. Instead, it usher, helped usher in the greatest period of post-war expansion. Uh to date. And one of the big subjects in the 2000 presidential debates between Gore and Bush was what to do with the surplus. Right. So we were wrong. I mean, let's admit we were wrong. And I think we saw with Bush an attempt to try to come up with a new formulation of what it meant in a post-Cold War era, in an era in which crime had, had greatly gone down, in an era in which taxes had gone down, um, what does it mean to be a conservative? So, you know, for Bush, the cornerstone of this was education. He passed No Child Left Behind. You can argue the merits of that. But, you know, there's that famous picture that he's signing No Child Left Behind with Ted Kennedy standing over his right shoulder.
1: Ted Kennedy and Orrin and Orin Hatch, like the you had a the far right, and and the, far, the far left That's right. and the center That's right. I right. <laughs> forgot. Orrin Hatch was there too.
0: And and that would be presented in like a war crimes tribunal now in the Republican
1: caucus. George W. Bush couldn't get arrested in a Republican primary today. He would be in he'd be in the single digits. And what I mean, what I think just baffles you and I is why didn't
0: they fight? When Donald Trump entered the primary, look, I'm talking to the guy who saw this more clearly than anybody, whose book, Everything Trump Touches Dies, is going to be you know, the governing statement of the truth of this era (laughs) and that and cruelty adam sewers cruelty what is it cruelty is the point um i think those your book and his book are the two cornerstones uh that will define this era
1: why didn't they fight i've asked so many of them stewart and you you and i have both had these conversations with these guys from u.s senators and governors on down to like Republican activists and over and over and over and over and over again, the through line that I found uh, before 2016 was they thought he was a joke. They thought he was a clown. They thought he could never win the primary, never win the general. All you had to do was get one-on-one and That's in the right. primary with right. Trump and you'd win. I had almost word for word, I'm sure you did two conversations with Jeb, and Marco and their people and Ted Cruz and his people, and they would all say, I'm the true conservative. If I get into one-on-one with him, I will take him out. And every single one of them got eaten. So they did that. They, they thought he was a clown at first. Then they thought, oh, well, you know, okay, well, Hillary will beat him. We'll reset. We'll come back again in 2020. And it was just wrong. It was totally wrong. And and But after 2016, it transformed – um, and it became fear of Trump and fear of his base and fear of Fox News and fear they would be primaried. And then after January 6th, the ones who are not fully actual crazy magas are so scared um, of being murdered, frankly, that they shut up. I mean, and that to me is one of the, like the most striking authoritarian hallmarks of what we're in right now. Is that is that political terror and the purpose of terrorism, as we know, is to terrorize. Trump terrorized them and they are still terrified after all this time. No matter no matter what moment they had to take him out, they had two times to impeach him, they didn't do it. They had any number of times to, to, to try to beat him in a primary. They won't say his name. They won't they won't curse his name. And you know what? By the time we roll around into March of next year, Trump will have defeated let's call it 25 major Republican candidates of various backgrounds, types, and 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 abilities in, Repu- in a Republican primary. There's something wrong with them in this world.
0: Look, they were heirs to the greatest generation, and they just gave it away. And, and I have just, I mean, a lot of these people... You and I helped elect. A lot of them, you know, they live next door to you. They'd be good neighbors. They'd stop on the road to help you. But they they have betrayed their oath of office, and they have failed this extraordinary legacy that they were granted. And I think that we would all be very foolish if we believed that the, or that Trump can't win and 24. And that if Trump does win, that it won't fundamentally alter what it means to be an American citizen in relationship to your
1: government. And the idea of Trump winning a second term, it's weird because I don't think, I think Democrats have in some ways sold themselves on the idea, kind of the 2016 thought, oh, well, he can't win again. No way he could win again. I think they're completely completely damn wrong on that. I think he can. I think there are a lot of pathways for Trump to win again, whereas Biden actually has a fairly narrow pathway to win again in the Electoral College. It's not it's not going to be an easy race, folks. If you're listening and you have some sort of buzz on that, you think that Donald Trump, because he's sitting in in a courtroom right now, might not be president uh, in January of twenty twenty five. Wake the hell up. One of the things about a second Trump term is that the people who are the shock troops now, who are the crazies right now, will be in government. Uh, to walk, to walk people through what what you think would happen. You know what what a Trump government looks like in the second term. Um, and, and again, s- since you're writing about authoritarianism, I mean this is this is how it worked in Germany. Yeah, and and Hungary.
0: You know, right? this is why they're in love with Viktor Orban. Look, I, I you know one of the the truths that those that really have studied authoritarianism all their life, like Ruth Ben-Ghiat you know, they will say over and over, listen to what they say, because they always tell you what they do. So uh, you were talking about the other night on the Resolute Square show, Trump's attempts in his first term to use the power of the state to control uh, businesses that he disagreed with, that he thought were not adequate to uh, serving his needs, uh, which you've seen Ron DeSantis try to do in Florida, attacking the Happiness Company. I mean, you know, just say, I mean, wake us up in the middle of the night 10 years ago, he said, a Republican governor is attacking Disney. Disney. would <laughs> be like, are you so drunk? But so, <laughs> so much so that, you know, they cancel a billion dollar expansion, 20,000 jobs, at average pay over $100,000. We would have said, that's insane. That's not going to happen. You know, it's just, no. But it did. So, if you look at what they've written about what they want to do, they want to do away with the civil service. They want to clearly put people in charge of the military who will see the military as an extension of owed, not to the constitution, but owed to that person in power, Donald Trump. And they, they clearly have tried to, uh, attack, destabilize all of the pillars of civil society, the judiciary. Trump did it when he was running in 16, when he attacked a judge from Indiana as a Mexican because he ruled on a um, crazy Trump University case that he didn't approve of. They attacked the Justice Department. They attacked the FBI. I mean, mean, in many ways, this is stuff like, is, is this the Republican Party or is it like, the weathermen from the 1960s attacking the FBI, attacking essence is attacking uh, democracy itself by attacking the electoral system. Which has been, the, you know, they, their messages sync with Russia so clearly. I mean, from the 20s, it was a message in Russia that we really don't have democracy. Soviet Union don't really have democracy in America. That it's an illusion.
1: That's what they say. We, we don't have democracy. We have an illegal president. Well, Stuart, thank you so much for joining me today on The Enemies List. Uh, we could probably talk about this for hours and probably will. Folks, the book is The Conspiracy to End America, Five Ways My Old Party is Driving Our Democracy to Autocracy by my friend Stuart Stevens. Stuart, thank you again, and I will talk to you later today. Thanks, buddy. Greatly appreciate it. See ya. Well, folks, The Enemies List this week could not be easier. It's American anti-Semites. Look. The idea that a rabbi, a 40-year-old woman who is known for her good works, stabbed the death in Detroit, it's not a killing. It's a hate crime. It's a murder. The people that are superficially pro-Palestinian and yet are carrying Hamas flags on the streets of America and yet are complaining... About Israel's treatment of Hamas, not of the Palestinians, but of Hamas, they're not doing this because they care about the fate of the plight or the plight of the Palestinian people. They're doing it because they hate Jews, and we have to be real about it. And there's a meme floating around right now that I think is very, very important. Um, and a lot of people are complaining. Oh, the Jews are saying so much. They're so they're they're just bitching. And they're the real problem. And why do they keep complaining? The reason they're speaking out, the reason they're vocal, the reason they're absolutely passionate right now is because 90 years ago, people kept quiet and 90 years ago, people were comfortable in public saying, oh, the Jews are the bad ones, oh, the Jews are the problem. And now they're not going to put up with it and neither should any right thinking person. But there are a lot of American anti-Semites out there in and out of public life, in and out of elite academic institutions, both professors and students. And it's merging on the left and the right in a kind of horrible anti-Semitic horseshoe where the neo-Nazis and the alt-righters don't sound much different than the democratic socialists and the folks who hate Israel with a mad burning passion. And for all of you, you're on The Enemies List. Thanks again for listening to The Enemies List.